Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. The nominees are as follows. Susan Hayward for I'll Cry Tomorrow, Katie Hepburn for Summertime, Jennifer Jones for Love is a Many Splendid Thing, Anna Mignani for The Rose Tattoo, and Eleanor Parker for Interrupted Melody. And the winner is... The winner is Anna Mignani in The Rose Tattoo. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we are going to be talking about the 1956 ceremony year win for Anna Mignani for The Rose Tattoo. Uh, 1956 at the Academy Awards, uh, Best Picture went to the film Marty, Best Director went to Dilbert Mann for the film Marty, uh, Best Supporting Actress went to Joe Van Fleet for East of Eden, Best Supporting Actor went to Jack Lemon for Mr. Roberts, and Best Actor went to Ernest Bornine for Marty. Uh, this is a very popular film this year. Uh, today I am joined by um, an entertainment writer. Uh, he writes about comedy, he writes about theater, so you can see um, some of his work in the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, in Variety. Uh, he also has an entertainment blog that you can check out called So Sumi. Uh, please welcome back to the podcast, it's Glenn Sumi. Hi Glenn. Hey Kyle, thanks for having me back. I am so happy that you are uh, back because you are like an expert on this kind of stuff. You're the perfect no. guest because I'm just no. a comedian. I just make fun of things. No, no, I love your. I love this uh, this podcast. I've learned so much, and it always makes me laugh. So. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to hear that because to be honest with you, whenever I, I always preface every, every couple episodes being like, Hey, if you guys are looking for like a history lesson, like that is not what this is going to be. <laughs> exactly. It's just hard opinions and I'm just making a lot of jokes, but we do have some <laughs> facts in there. So I'm glad to hear that, yeah. you know, there is some educational um, value in my show, totally. I suppose. Totally. Um, but I, I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, spoken to you since the last time you were on. How, how are things? How have you been? Um, they're okay. It's been, I think it was like a year ago that we did, uh, what was it? The On Golden Pond, uh, Catherine Hepburn win. Oh. Um, and a lot has happened. I am no longer with Now Magazine. I was there for almost 25 years when we talked. Wow. And they have since changed hands. And so, uh, as you pointed out, I've just been doing my writing elsewhere. Uh, yeah, it's, it was, it was, it was really disgusting. They didn't pay the staffers for like six months or so. Oh, ew. And we were like working for free. So now I'm getting paid. Now I'm a freelancer and, you know, can choose whatever I want to do, which is really exciting. And, um, and what I want to do is like, you know, write about theater and comedy and film. So. Yay. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Also, um, yeah. ew to now Toronto right? Magazine. That's yeah. gross. Thank you. <laughs> but you're, you're free now of those jackals. I love that. Yes. Um, okay, so uh, this was a very interesting year. Um, obviously, like we don't have a ton of episodes left to do for this podcast. I think there's probably, I think, 15 to 20 episodes left. And so I always like to ask my guests, you know, why they selected a certain year. Is there any particular reason you selected um, Anna Magnani? 
Well, I think because like the last episode I did, I had seen all of those films at least once. Mm-hmm. And this year, when I was looking through the list, I I thought I had seen I'll Cry Tomorrow, but I got it actually mixed up with another Susan Hayward film. So it turns out I hadn't seen any of these films. And I thought, wow. So I came, no preconceptions, you know, fresh eyes and hoping to make lots of discoveries and um and it worked out that way so you know it was really refreshing i think to see what mid 50s what the mid 50s performances were like what the what the roles were like Mm -hmm. uh so there were a lot of similarities you probably found too in just the parts that they were playing they were all basically romances but uh you know and some good actors i wouldn't say uh i mean we'll talk about this but and i know you have in the past too jennifer jones and yeah. not my favorite actress no i knew you were um, say that <laughs> oh, yeah and i you know it was weird i've gone through my whole life without knowing this was a yellow face role so yeah. so that was a, that was a surprise um and i had never even heard of something like uh interrupted melody and i'm a big opera fan so that was you know that was a a big uh, surprise too oh i love that i mean i actually was delightfully surprised by this year as well just because um i find with these older years when you go back like pre you know kind of 1970s 1980s it's like i find it's very hit or miss where it'll be like the most painful year you've ever done or (laughs) it'll be like like just so many gems and i feel like Mm -hmm. this year um, did not disappoint except for uh, Love is a Many Splendid Thing with Jennifer Jones and my ongoing campaign to convince everybody that she is one of the most overrated actresses of her generation continues yeah, yeah. Uh, because of this film but we will we'll we'll get into that so Uh um let's jump into it then and let's talk about our uh first nominee you had just mentioned on golden pond so that we'll use that as a jumping off point to talk about Catherine hepburn in the movie summertime so uh for anybody that doesn't know quick imdb of the plot description of summertime an american spinster's dream of romance finally becomes a bittersweet reality when she meets a handsome but married this is also a theme going on this year italian Mm -hmm. man while vacationing in venice um i have actually seen this movie before i am with katherine hepburn i either love the movie or i really can't stand it this is one of these that i love i've seen this movie uh, before I think that she is like the right choice for this role and it's just kind of um, fun and interesting seeing her uh, you know because there's the African queen and then this time she's in Italy so she's always going around the world and it's always like okay like which adventure are we going on with her this time because well, on Golden Pond she's at a cabin and then <laughs> now we're in Venice and so it, I always enjoy like a Catherine Hepburn um, sort of adventure however um, this is a very controversial opinion, but I always am very aware that I'm watching Catherine Hepper, not to mm-hmm. diminish her abilities or skills, but she doesn't have that like Meryl Streep sort of, she loses herself in the character type of, um, acting in my opinion anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I enjoy her and I enjoyed, um, this movie and obviously after watching it, I can't stop talking like her. I'm like, Oh there. You know, um, but anyway, so um, Glenn, what did you uh, think of this movie and what did you think of Katherine Hepburn's performance? Um, I really liked the movie. I, it was funny because I tweeted out that I was going to be watching it. And there were a lot of a lot of, uh, let's say, women of a certain age mm-hmm. who tweeted back and said it was like their favorite film. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of agree. I thought the film, I had been meaning to watch this for the longest time. I thought it was gorgeous. Uh, and as far as her performance goes, I mean, she's, you know, Catherine Hepburn is used to playing these urban sophisticates. She's, you know, this take charge, independent women. And I thought it was just so fascinating watching her play somebody who's just sort of more humble. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, she, I, I think she calls herself what a, a, a fancy secretary or something right. from Akron, Ohio. And, you know, I completely believed her uh, in this role. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's quite something. I, and, and again, I was playing the game of who else could I have seen in this role? And she just completely, she completely, you know, embodied this character. And uh, she did that. That funny thing happens like with the best movies. Uh, I, I think the last time it happened was Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn. You have this character who is so well-defined that you want good things to happen to her. You're so right. protective of her. Mm-hmm. You don't want, you know, bad things to happen. You don't want, and that ended up happening midway through with this film, with her character, Jane. And I just thought, oh, please don't let him become this cad. Don't let him ask her for money or whatever. And um, and I, 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 I just loved her performance. It's, uh, I think, because I know what you mean, like whenever you immediately are like are rooting for her and you want good things mm. to happen to her, it's whenever she kind of tries to invite herself to dinner with that couple. Oh. And then they're like, oh, like we're going to like a double date thing. And then she's like, uh, oh, and she pretends like she doesn't care, but you can tell that it kind of hurts her feelings a little bit. And then she sees them out like when she's having dinner and she tries to make it look like she's fine and she doesn't care. That was kind of when I was like, oh no. And you're like rooting for her and you want good things to happen. Um, I think when the movie starts and she uses the word golly in like the first scene, (laughs) they like needed to let you know that it's the 1950s right off the bat. Like golly geezer, you know? Um, I thought that was, uh, that's a, that, anyway, I thought that, that tickled me is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but what I enjoy very much uh, about Catherine Hepburn uh, in this movie is I would almost argue this is the most watchable Catherine Hepburn mm-hmm. movie. This mm-hmm. and The Lion in Winter are probably mm-hmm. my two faves. Um, mm-hmm. But like you're saying, it's just, she's so comfortable in this role and it's just such a, it's just a good, fun, enjoyable movie. And oh, ris- so risque. Oh, he's married, but they're getting separated. And so it's for 1950s, how gauche. And, you know, I I love, because um, like I'm in an open relationship. So for me, I'm just like, lol, uh, like monogamy. That's funny. To me anyway, it's just because it's always like the plot points of these older films is always like, yeah. you know, the, having an affair. Oh my God, I can't believe that. And so it's, it it just the the it's just a fun adventure. I don't really know if you have any necessarily like big scenes from her other than uh, whenever she finds out uh, that he is married and the sort of mm-hmm. conflict that she has with dealing with that and whether she will or she won't. You know, I found those scenes very very interesting. But the whole thing with Catherine Hepburn performances, I I just never really. She just is very consistent and she's doing the job. I just, I never see these like big, like, wow moments from her, but maybe that's just me and I don't know what I'm talking about, but I just, I feel that way when I watch these movies, but I loved her in this. I really did. Yeah. Which I think makes it sort of, you know, true to life. I mean, that Mm -hmm. one scene, do you remember, I think it was, 
it was, uh, I can't remember, midway through the film, but she whispers, I love you. And then she runs off. Right. I thought, oh my God, that took so much for this character to say. Just in the same way that it took so much for this character to cheerfully ask if she could come along to the restaurant, you know, with the, with the pension neighbors or whatever. And then we saw the crushing defeat after. And, um, and I love that, you know, there, yeah, there aren't really huge Oscar moments, I guess, but mm. it's a really quiet film. Like, you know, right. you've seen it a couple of times, but that you know, it was new to me. And when near the end, and I know the podcast is full of spoilers and everything, but at the end, she knows she's about to leave, I think, and what her train leaves in like two hours or so. Right. And so she sits down in St. Mark's Square uh, with him and you can tell based on just her body language, the way she's savoring everything. She looks up like she's never going to forget this moment. And you know something big is on her mind. And it's just like, you know, that that is so true. That's so true to life. And again, not a huge moment, but those are the sorts of things that just make this just a great performance. I do have to say, though, uh, the, the one thing I couldn't believe is the fact that she's a spinster. You're like, you are right. so smart. You're gorgeous. Like, I don't know. But that was the one thing I was like, okay, you're a spinster. Fine. Let's just go along with it. But <laughs> yeah, there's no way. I, yeah. I mean, you know, I thought that the costuming was really good. Do you notice how... At the beginning, she was always wearing this. She had this little matching ribbon in her hair. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, maybe she's just always sort of had this sort of girlish sort of thing. And she never really became a woman. And that really, uh, that thing that she says to the landlady or whatever uh, about her friend who always wanted something magical or something to happen. You know, she saved her money for this. So, so who knows? Maybe they're, you know, I hope she wasn't. A virgin. I don't know. We're never really told because it was a fifties, right? But, uh, you know, I mean, and then when she when they did have sex, there were like fucking fireworks. I know. Did you love that? That was like I think that was my favorite scene. I actually laughed out loud when they retire to the bedroom and then we look out um, over a canal and see like fireworks. It's like okay, we know what's going on. Yeah, they're laying it on thick there for sure. Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, a couple of facts about this movie. When Catherine Hepburn filled this, filmed the scene where she falls into the canal, one of her eyes became infected and that infection actually stayed with her for the rest of her life. Woof. Wow, that I sucks. Um, this is reportedly director uh, Sir David Lean's personal favorite of his own movies. And uh, Sir David Lean uh, encountered problems with the locals and had to donate money for the restoration of a local church to break the deadlock. It was the height of tourist season and several merchants and gondoliers claimed that filming was disrupting their business. So Lean paid for the lost income as well as work on the church, which would make sense because we had, I had just gone to see um, uh, Mission Impossible, the new one that just came out, like part six or mm-hmm. part like 400. There's so many of them. <laughs> and um, they were going through Italy. And I remember the thing that was, the, they have like explosions and like these crazy stunts and like he's jumping out of planes and stuff like that. But the most unbelievable thing of this movie was how empty the streets were in Italy. I was like, mm. no, because I was there literally in May and like the streets are swamped and there's so much traffic and everybody's on those like Vespas that it's like, when you're watching the movie, you're like, wow, like Italy seems so quiet and chill. It's like, no, it's insanely busy. And like, there's so much hustle bustle in the city. Um, So I guess, yeah, yeah, that would be, um, I've never been to, have you ever been to Venice before? 
Yeah, just once. Yeah, uh, it was gorgeous. Um, but yeah, overly crowded and really hot and uh, didn't have an encounter with a shopkeeper who looked like <laughs> Rosanna Brazzi, though. And come on. I mean, he was charming. He was. He was really charming and handsome and suave. And uh, and I'm so glad that he was in love with her character, too, and he didn't want anything extra. Because, you know, there was an interesting... It's based on a play by... Um, by Arthur Lawrence, who wrote uh, West Side Story, mm-hmm. uh, the book for West Side Story. And in the play, he, Renato actually, after she, after Jane leaves, he actually is on to his next conquest. So he, he immediately looks for somebody else. So I'm so glad oh, really? we didn't get that in the film. Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's a, that's a more cynical sort of ending and probably, let's face it, more realistic. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> You yeah. know, and but that but, because I think that the whole like them falling in love and during like in like one day and then they you know make love and then yeah. she has to leave immediately. I think that's as much of like a marital affair that an audience can handle in like nineteen fifty five. Yeah. So right. I feel like if they had that ending where he kind of just like keeps uh, mm-hmm. you know going and keeps look trying to look up or hook up with some other woman, I'm I'm sure mm-hmm. that it would make the character even more unlikable and. You know, but in this movie, though, yeah, like you said, I think that what makes the performance so successful is the fact that you are rooting for her the whole time and you yeah. do want good things to happen to her, like yeah. Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn. Although, frankly, I yeah. much prefer Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I have a problem with this performance. It's very good, but I'm just saying, between the two. Yeah. Um, um, and I... I also wrote down sort of what you were talking to about um, uh, talking about about open relationships. I said, yeah, the attitude t- towards sex. I think like modern gays get it. Yeah, you know, with the whole thing when she found out that the artist guy who was staying at the hotel was having an affair with like the landlady. Right. Um, and I like that sort of European, I you know, uh, attitude towards sex, and and it's just like, yeah, it's not that important. It's really um, not. No, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, I also really enjoyed the relationship that she had with that like street kid. Oh yeah, yeah. That was yeah. at first. So yeah. some of my favorite scenes were with with him, the little boy. Good kid acting. At first, I wrote down, "Oh, is he going to be like the Disney cartoon sidekick?" Right. You know? Totally. But he, but he was actually really good, and I loved, uh, I loved how every now and then he he popped in, and he that kid was smart. Like he knew something was going on in her life too. You know, so. Um, yeah, I, overall, I just thought it's a beautiful film. I would love to see this like on a big screen. Like if I found out it was happened, you know, screening at the Tiff Bell light box or something, I would totally go. I would, I would buy a ticket. Oh, I get that. Um, I think one of the most overacted scenes of the movie was whenever, um, that lady comes back to the hotel and she has the same Venetian glass, mm, um, that yeah. he, uh, allegedly was like selling from the 18th century and her reaction when she like knocks over the chair and starts to cry. I think that was arguably the most overacted True. scene. I think that would be more on David Lean as the director to be like, mm. that was really yeah. the only scene that I was kind of like, okay, this is like kind of a lot, but literally give it up for Catherine Hepburn for like selling it because it was just so ridiculous yeah. and it was too much oh, yeah. of a reaction. Um but uh, yeah, this this is such an enjoyable film. Anybody listening, if you have not seen Summertime, I think that, yeah, this is easily like top three, maybe even top two uh, Catherine Hepburn performances and films for me anyway. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. 
Okay, well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to uh, Miss Hepburn's performance before we move no, on? No, I, I mean, I love that final train scene, too. That was unexpected. I didn't know it was going to happen. Um, you know, like, it's the sort of thing where she tells the guy, no, I'm going to go, don't, you know, don't follow me, don't follow me. So she's about to leave, She's and then she's looking back to see is he going to come? You know, is he going to come? And, and, and he does, and he chases her or chases after the train. And then what he is holding in his hand just totally made me made, it made me tear up. Yeah. It was, it was so sweet. It's a, it's a good ending. And um, again, also just because of like the morals of America during that time for the time period, it was the perfect ending yeah. to that little affair. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. So scandalous. Um, okay. Well, let's then talk about the oh-so-controversial Jennifer Jones in Love is a Many Splendid Thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, just a quick plot. A widowed Chinese-English doctor falls in love with a married American correspondent in Hong Kong during China's Communist Revolution. So, this film won Best Promoting International Understanding at the Golden Globes. (laughs) Yeah, so we'll just start there. Um, And uh, the decision to cast Jennifer Jones as Dr. Han Suyin was widely criticized, and the real-life Han Suyin had no interest in seeing this glossy interpretation of her life because this this is based off of a true story. And I gotta say, I would completely understand uh, if you cast a white woman to play this... um, Eurasian, as they kept referring to it every five seconds in the movie, in case you didn't know, <laughs> she was Eurasian. She's like, hi, um, where's your bathroom? And I'm Eurasian. Like, it was just <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. And it was like, we, yeah. wow, we get it, Jennifer Jones. But this, yeah. It, yeah, continues on with my uh, Jennifer Jones being one of the most overrated actors. I've also, I've never seen the song of Bernadette, the movie that she won her Oscar for, but the three films that I have seen her in now, I just, I don't get it. And I don't understand these nominations. Also, this movie is stunning. And you're like, okay, like, I'm going to get into this. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, fine. Like, she's yellow face. Like, let's, uh, like, just accept it and just watch the movie. Like, whatever. But there's really not a lot here. Like, I find, like, movies from back in the day, they really could just get by on the chemistry between the actors or the or the 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 hint that they might get together or they might not get together the will they won't they it's like they could stretch that out for like two hours nowadays that can't really fly in films and i just found like there's a lot going on here you know you have uh the communist the china's communist revolution it's like why don't we see some of that there's some action he literally dies um in what was it was it korea yeah, Korea. Yeah. He dies in, in Korea. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. like there there are a lot of things that could make this movie a lot more enjoyable, a lot more interesting, a lot more, I don't know, action-packed. And I just feel like it really didn't go there. And I just didn't think um, that this story was compelling enough for me because, for the love of God, she was white. And the whole thing was that their relationship was so forbidden and she was being shunned by, like, um, you know, her Chinese coworkers and friends because he was American. It's like, so was this bitch. Like, what are you talking about? So th- I didn't, I, the, um, the illusion didn't work on me. So f- overall, it's just this movie didn't work for me. And neither did this performance. Anyway, I've said my piece. So Glenn, um, <laughs> what did you think of this movie? And what did you think of Jennifer Jones? 
Yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to get past the the yellow face performance. Um, and I don't, I just don't really like her as an actress. Uh, she's sort of got this sort of glassy look in her pale face, sort of glassy look in her eyes, like, um, what's her name? Um, Lily Collins, Phil Collins's daughter, oh. who I also don't think is much of an actress. Um, but <laughs> I did kind of buy into this sort of you know, romance with this interesting setting. And William Holden, I, yeah, he's always good to look at. Oh, of course. Especially when he's in his swimsuit or whatever. And there's this, yeah, almost laughable scene in the middle of the movie where they they, they go swimming. Um, <laughs> I found the, the gossiping colonials in Hong Kong. I found that sort of interesting. They're really petty and they, um, you know, and they, they ultimately just, you know, shun her when they find out that she's having this affair with the guy. But there are so many clunky lines in this film. I wrote a couple down when uh, Bill Holden says to her, I think the relationship between East and West should be closer, don't you, doctor? And then he, <laughs> asks, he asks her to dance. And then the funniest thing, I actually had to replay it, was when she goes and visits her her family in China, um, and her the whole goal of it is to um, to sort of bridge this whole uh, situation where I think her cousin or something is with a foreigner, just in the same way that she is. And so the uh, this the woman, the other woman, says, "Some of the family thought you would seem foreign to us. You do not. You have not changed." She says this. To the Caucasian actors in yellow face, <laughs> and I just I roared. Um, but you know, uh, but but you know, I'm so glad that that real Asian actors got to play her family. You know, so there are some you know real key figures in in uh, in in China uh, in Asian American sort of film history in in the film, but they're just not in the lead roles. Um, yeah. and the music. Oh, Kyle. The music, I mean, yeah, she says I'm Eurasian a lot, but the fucking score comes back <laughs> so often. This really has to have, this has to like beat some sort of record for the most times a theme song has been played in a film. Um, so really, it was like an earworm for like days after I would be fucking whistling this damn Love is a Mighty Splendor thing. Oh, that's, I, didn't it I think it actually won like Best Original It won, it, it totally won, yeah. How could it not? I yeah. Mean, you know. <laughs> um, that's funny. You know, it's I oh, one of my favorite lines because we're you, you know mentioning some of your favorite lines. My favorite line was whenever in their way uh, in Bill Holden character's way of saying um, that he was in love with her was that um, he said I've stopped biting my fingernails mm. and she's like oh my god <laughs> and I was like oh my god who wrote that like I the the choice yeah. They're very yeah. clunky, um, borderline comedic. Um, yeah. And it just, I know I've already said that, but literally just that you wouldn't understand. You're not Eurasian. It's like, neither <laughs> are you. <laughs> like, you need to stop telling everybody that you're Eurasian. It's super annoying. It's like, are you trying to convince um, them or yourself? Because I don't even know if you believe it at this point. Um, yeah. Anyway, so... Um, I don't think that she really has any sort of big uh, moments in this uh, film. I, I don't really find the story compelling. I couldn't get into it. I couldn't get into her character. I wasn't rooting for her. Um, I think that the big scene that was supposed to happen was when she finds out in the paper that Mark is dead 
And she has kind of this like big in the face, but yet calm reaction and then like runs out of the house. And I'm like, I've seen better acting in a soap opera. Like, yeah. and I'm sure, I'm not saying that she's a bad actress. I'm just saying that to see that this is nominated for an Academy Award, it just sort of seems almost insulting to whoever it was that didn't get nominated this year. I don't have a list, but I'm just saying, I'm yeah. sure there was somebody more deserving. Totally. I mean, and also, you know, while I was like bored out of my mind, I kept thinking who could imagine Michelle Yeoh in the, in, in the title, in this role. Right. Right. Imagine what she could have done with it. She would have been believable, first of all, yes. as a doctor. Um, and, you know. Or as an agent. Yeah. <laughs> you know. That, that's, that's a big part of the role. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. I wrote down that this film had my attention for the first act, but then after there's not really much there. Um, the compelling conflict I found, yeah, was very, it was missing. And I think I must have written down four or five times the thing about being biracial or Eurasian. I think I <laughs> was like, okay, wait a minute. Are you, are you Eurasian? Cause you haven't, you haven't mentioned it 50 times. I, okay. Um, so this film is based on a true story. It was recorded in Dr. Hans Suyin's autobiographical novel, A Many Splendored Thing. The journalist Mark Elliott, Bill Holden's character, is based on Ian Morrison, a British correspondent who had an affair with Dr. Han in Hong Kong. As depicted in the film, Morrison was still in Korea in 1950 mm -hmm. uh, while covering the war there. Honestly, this sounds like this could be a very interesting film. I just think that um, it was kind of a letdown. And I was excited at first when it started. Oh, also, he was his character is married at the beginning uh, whenever they first meet. So there's kind of like a little bit of a theme going on here, which is... Yeah movies totally. and these plot points yeah yeah uh and i also didn't think they did enough with do you remember the friend that she meets um at a tea house or something yes uh, who who grew up with her like in the convent school or whatever it was called and she was eurasian too even though she looks more caucasian see even your cat doesn't your cat didn't like this film either. <laughs> My cat is literally not into this. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, you're a Siamese cat. Um, so, and and I thought, oh, so is it, this is going to be like a B plot kind of thing, and uh, and then so I think she's also having an affair with uh, a Hong Kong sort of colonial, but it's it's a lot more discreet. Like they don't sit on the same seat. Like it, they don't sit together on a plane or something. Mm -hmm. And I, and that wasn't really developed. I thought, Oh, so this will be, this will have, this will contrast the relationship that she's having with Bill Holden, but right. didn't really do that. No. Um, I found the hill that they were on that they kept going to. So there's this little romantic hill with a single tree or whatever that they keep meeting at. It's their sort of meeting their place sort of away from society. I found that just so weird. Like, how long did it take them to get up there? I know. Like, you know, it's like fucking 45 minutes. Like, you can't just, you know, leave work and meet at our at our spot. It's like, this doesn't seem close to anything. Like, how did you get here, people? It's um, that, that was a cardio workout for sure. Like, you are working, <laughs> getting your steps in. The abs, I thought this yes. was a tedious climb. Mm -hmm. And apparently it was filmed in L.A. It wasn't even filmed, you know in uh, in hong kong so yeah it was all like a backdrop or something like that but uh yeah i kind of teared up a little bit at the end but in the same but you know but it's 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 so contrived and so melodramatic um and so especially when bill holden shows up at, at their spot even though he's dead 
Um, I sort of succumbed to it. So I, I apologize for that. <laughs> but I'm glad I felt something at the end. Interesting. I didn't. I literally was just happy yeah. it was over. I was, <laughs> oh, thank God. I. Because, yeah, so now it's been, what, I've seen Love Letters, Jewel in the Sun, and then this. Wow. And, and each time I'm literally like, how is this woman nominated? And why? And then I found out that she was, like, married to, like, a studio head. And I'm like... Whoa. David Selznick. David O. Selznick. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder I wonder if gossip columnists at the time were saying she's such a bad actress. It's just because she's married <laughs> to a studio head that she's getting all these fucking roles and nominations. Yeah. It, there's definitely some politics going on there, you know? Totally, um, yeah. yeah. So apparently... Jennifer Jones reportedly chewed garlic cloves before her love scenes with William Holden, which may have been an effort to deter her notoriously womanizing co-star. I mean, she was gorgeous, so yeah, he probably was coming for her. Uh, Considering how badly they were getting along, uh, Holden suspected that it was Jones's uh, attempt to annoy him. So Mm. maybe he was into it. I don't know. But anyway, overall, so if anybody... um, is looking for like a, an ironic viewing experience, you <laughs> yeah. know, maybe watch this movie. Cause it's like kind of funny in certain areas, but like the first 30 minutes is like the most watchable. And then after that, I would, I was just praying that one of them would die. And then they did. And I was like, Oh, thank God. And then the movie ended. And I was like, great, but uh, yeah, great music. Great score. <laughs> great song. <laughs> um, okay. Well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to Jennifer June? Absolutely not. <laughs> She's done enough. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Best Actress listeners. Enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning, ad-free, by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to the real nominees. Uh, let's, talk about, <laughs> let's talk about Eleanor Parker in Interrupted Melody. So this movie chronicles Australian-born opera star Marjorie Lawrence's success, her battle with polio, and her eventual career comeback. And I would just like to say that she lip-syncs for her life from the very mm-hmm. beginning, and she slays for days. And I always mm-hmm. think that must be so awkward as an actor to do those kinds of things. Um, and I think that she absolutely um, nails it. I also uh, loved watching uh, her journey through this. I'd seen Eleanor Parker uh, from the very first episode that I did the show in a movie called Caged, where she like goes to prison and um, <laughs> it's really funny the way that they depict prison for white women, like having to take off their jewels and furs as they walk into <laughs> The prison and you're like oh is that what prison is like okay uh but anyway um eleanor parker uh in this movie just was absolutely um fantastic i love watching her um entire journey the only thing is uh bitch you're from australia where is your australian accent totally yeah that was really the only criticism that i had because i kind of was like wait a minute 
isn't she like from like a farm in like the middle of Australia? She'd have like a g'day, like kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. intent, like the, I don't, I'm not going to do like a horrible Australian accent, uh, but I'm just saying like, I feel like even just, she didn't even try. That really is my only criticism of, um, you know, the performance overall. But whenever, um, you know, she's diagnosed with, polio like her uh, those the scenes in the hospital bed and and her fear and the way that she had to adjust um you know with this uh, inability to walk and and she could still sing but she she felt like she she couldn't um debut like her new what's the word like her new not like debut, but like she doesn't want the world to see that she can't walk and they don't want them to feel bad for her. And then so she kind of stopped singing and just her adjustment and her relationship with her husband. And like, it was, it was a very compelling story. I really loved this movie. I think that Eleanor Parker, like just really knocked it out of the park other than the Australian accent thing, which is, seems kind of important. But anyway, um, other though, other than that though, I just, I, I really enjoyed um, this film and I really enjoyed this performance. Anyway, uh, Glenn, what did what did you think? I mean, I only knew Eleanor Parker from The Sound of Music, where she plays, right. what is it, the Baroness or whatever? So she's, you know, the woman who's betrothed to Captain Von Trapp or whatever. And so we're primed to sort of not like her because she's all glamorous and has jewels and everything. Um, and so I was really surprised. And, and as, as I said at the beginning, I didn't even know this film existed. Mm-hmm. Um I think the lip syncing she did was fantastic. And apparently during the filming, she actually did sing. So she learned all of these arias and things. Um, One of my problems with the film was that there were no translations for all these arias. So, you know, you've got them in Italian, you've got them in French and, and, and German. And it would be really nice because not everyone knows opera to just have the translations of what she was singing. Um, I thought, again, I wrote down that she's the anti-Meryl Streep. So, yeah, she had, she cared nothing about sounding like an Australian, which is a little incongruous because, you know, the first scene we see her in, she's galloping on this horse to get to, I don't know, to get to an audition or something like that. Uh, so she's, you know, she's down in the mud and the dirt and she's, you know, she's she's she has no airs at all. Why couldn't that come across in her voice? Right. Because I think that would have really endeared her to us because she fucking sounds like a countess from the beginning. She sounds like a baroness or something. She's got this husky voice. I wrote down that she reminded me of um, Anne Baxter in All About Eve. It was that sort of whispery, husky sort of voice, which seemed a little affected. Um, But yeah, apart from that, I thought she did a really good job. I mean, uh, when especially once she has... um, when she comes down with polio and she she sinks into this depression she she becomes suicidal she um you know and i think yeah i mean we can probably both agree her oscar moment when uh her husband uh glenn ford plays an old record of hers so she's just sort of wasting away on on the sofa and just doesn't want to to, to do anything. She doesn't want to resuscitate her career. She's depressed because her her physician husband now is barely getting by. She's not earning any money. So she's just wasting away on the sofa. And so he puts this record of her singing on across the room. And so what she has to do, she can't stand it. Mm-hmm. And he leaves the room and she has to crawl towards it to like, 
you know, uh, to to knock it down so it will stop. And I thought, you know, that's a difficult scene emotionally, physically. And I thought she she did that really, really well. So, oh, uh, I remember that scene as well. And just this, she sells it, you know, and she makes it yeah. seem very believable. And and just the yeah, the the struggle, the struggle is real, you know, yeah. and I, yeah. I do appreciate um, those scenes very much. But also, I just I love the scenes with her husband because it is such a strain on their marriage and he wants to be there for her and support her as, as, but he also like wants to help her in order to do that. He kind of has to do like a tough love thing like, like that. And so I I really enjoyed those kinds of scenes because those are things that would actually have happened. And um, I also would, I just read something shocking I don't think that she lip synced. I think she was actually singing. So I just read that Eleanor Parker can read music, has perfect pitch as a singer. She decided to study the scores of the opera songs used in this movie on her own. She rented a cabin in Lake Arrowhead, California, and played the records while singing along until she had the breathing and phrasing memorized. Then, when filming the scenes, instead of lip-syncing to the tracks recorded by Eileen Farrell for the movie, or Farrell, sorry, I pronounce things so wrong on this all the time. (laughs) I get get messages, and I'm just like, oh, suck it. Uh, She sang a full voice, um, but an octave lower than Eileen uh, Farrell would have. And she is proud of the fact that they never had to do a retake in order to quote match the tapes. She nailed it on. She nailed it on the first take every single time. And Marjorie Lawrence, who she's portraying here, uh, was said to have been disappointed not to have been asked to dub Eleanor Parker herself. Which, yeah, actually, that's a weird. That is a weird choice considering it's her music. Mm-hmm. It's her voice. Um, interesting. Uh, the contra oh yeah this is the weird thing too about this movie that i that i that i read okay this is wild so the contract that of glenn ford who plays like her husband there um made it a condition that he received top billing which wow. rightfully belonged to eleanor parker okay. parker claimed that she always cared more about um the projects than the billing but this is the mm-hmm. one time that she was very much wanted the credit to um, be like the star of the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Parker's bitterness was no doubt a factor in her later claiming that Ford shamelessly tried to upstage her at every chance by walking away from her and the camera, forcing her to turn her back to the camera to interact with him. Wow. Like, that's such a dick move. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, did you did you feel there was chemistry between them? Because I I really liked that opening scene where she just she just I don't know she's in Monte Carlo or something and she sings, and she wants to um, you know celebrate or whatever, and he's there, but he's only there, he's leaving the next morning, and so they have this extended sort of date. Uh, I thought that was really really charming. But then he goes away, and then she becomes a star, and then comes back to New York, and he comes in, and she doesn't recognize him. Um, and I just wish they, I just wish there was more of the, uh, renewed relationship. Like when they meet each other again, I just thought there were a couple of beats missing for me to really buy into their relationship and their, their future marriage. Cause I didn't think they had the best chemistry, but then maybe it was just his dickishness on the set. I don't know. <laughs> like you could pick up on that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> 
you're like, hmm, you're like, something, something's wrong here. Something's, yeah, off kilter. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I To be honest with you, I, don't, I didn't really notice um, a lack of chemistry. I The one thing that I did notice that I uh, enjoyed was, like, how, like, shamelessly she she wanted him. Like, she's like, I will cancel my yeah. South American tour just for you. And the one thing that I thought was strange was, were they having financial problems? And is he not a doctor? Yeah. That was, I think... I like, exactly. I, I mean, I don't think a doctor then was what it is now. Okay. Uh, and I think he was just trying to build his practice. So... Right. That was... Yeah. I mean, the financial struggles they were having seemed very realistic. And so, you know, both of their senses of pride were really challenged. Um uh yeah uh you know and we didn't even get a wedding scene too which i thought was interesting uh you know because usually a film like this would have a sort of wedding scene Mm -hmm. um and i love the fact that her brother to her australian brother without an accent was played by (laughs) roger moore roger moore who was you know james one of the james bonds um right that was kind of cool um and, and you know, and the scene where she sings over the rainbow in uh, the hospital with the uh, the war vets, who are, I mean, I really did like that scene because she. There was one earlier scene where she's going to be making her debut with like the Florida Philharmonic or something like that, in a wheelchair, and she just succumbs to to stage fright and she can't go on to, like at the last minute, and it took singing for these injured, you know, war vets who many of whom were like in wheelchairs and had lost limbs for her to feel just sort of unselfconscious about her own uh, disability, I guess. Mm-hmm. And she sings over the rainbow, which I, I guess I did the math. And yeah, that, that would have been in the, you know, that would have been a well-known song, I guess. And I just thought that scene worked really beautifully. And um, and again, contrasting, you know, because there was a lot of opera before, and this is a song that absolutely everybody would have recognized in the theater in 1955. Right. I thought that was a really, really smart move. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I it was a nice it was a nice surprise to see this. I think that um, one thing I noticed was whenever she is um, originally or initially diagnosed with polio and she kind of becomes like a recluse and she becomes yeah. very depressed. And I think that when you really see where the character, where the character started and then where she kind of um, ends up, or at least up until that point, you're, I, I really feel like Eleanor Parker is really flexing like her acting abilities because it was so believable. And you almost think, I think about this all the time. I think about like whatever happened to baby Jane and you look at Joan mm. Crawford and just how she's not left the house in like decades, but she still looks great and she's so calm and whatever, like, and you're like, no, like you would be extremely depressed and you would yeah. be such a cunt and I yeah. am here for it and I love it. And the way that she was in this movie to me is more realistic. It was a very realistic uh, performance. But um, I love I love that you mentioned the thing at the end whenever she starts um, singing for all of the troops because the movie uh, just sort of becomes for the boys starring that mother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. It, it kind of ends on that a little bit because um, yeah. she has her final performance on stage and she kind of like, she doesn't like 
walk exactly. Like she kind of stands up and like um, uses her arms to kind of crawl over to um, the man that's dying on stage, the actor that's dying on stage. And she, so it ends on sort of like a positive note. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I, I suppose in a way this, this movie is about like the irrepressible human spirit and that she will overcome it. And um I really, I, this was, cause I watched this one after Love's a Many Splendored Thing and I was like, oh, thank God. You know, like this is, <laughs> this was enjoyable. This was like a good movie. And anyway, I, um, I was definitely a fan, definitely a fan of um, Eleanor Parker's uh, performance. I, good singing, apparently, a very good singing. Uh, yeah, just my only criticism is the fact that she's from fucking Australia and she doesn't have a single bit of an Australian accent. Um, uh, I'm also, uh, I mean, I was surprised with how long the opera excerpts were like, uh, yeah. you know, like did, did audiences in the 1950s, did they just know a lot about opera? Because usually you'll just get, you know, 10, 10, 15 seconds or whatever, but a lot of these arias were in their entirety. And I thought, wow, especially in the first half. So for me, even though I like, like opera and everything, I thought her character just became so much more interesting as the film progressed. Mm -hmm. And because at the beginning, you know, she start, she, first of all, she has like this overnight fame or whatever, and then she's going all over the world. And, but then only once she meets this, this roadblock and she, she has this, um, you know, she comes down with polio, does she begin to struggle? And that's when, to me, the film really began. And she goes through all of these stages of mm -hmm. grief or whatever and, and finally comes to acceptance. So, yeah, I just was astonished that those opera scenes were so long. And you get like five or six of them fully. Um, so that was that was interesting to me. Um, so I don't know how much modern audience, if you're not really into opera, especially as I was saying, without the subtitles, right. um, you could just fast forward, I guess. I kind of did. Like there was, yeah. some of them went on for a really long right? time. And I was yeah, like, yeah. okay, we're going to skip through this. Yeah, um, yeah. Or I'm just, oh, looks like I'm on my phone now. Like I, I kind of stopped paying. Because yeah, it, it was yeah. very, uh, it became a little tedious. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> yeah, a, a little, a little tedious. Um, but okay, just for time's sake, though, I do think that we should move yeah. on. Well, um, do you have anything uh, last minute that you would like to add to Eleanor Parker? In no, the no. Um, bad title though. I could never remember what this film was called. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had to just Google her name. I can't. I just still can't remember. <laughs> All fair. I mean, I can yeah. never remember yeah. any of these uh, movies or actors because I smoke a lot of weed. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about Susan Hayward in "I'll Cry Tomorrow." I have never uh, seen a Susan Hayward picture, Ooh. and um, I always think about the time in the Golden Girls when there's that party planner and he's very gay and he says, Oh my God, this reminds me of the galactic, the climactic scene uh, when Susan Hayward says at the end of, I want to live. And then yeah. Blanche is like, wow, you're ready to just fly right out of here. Aren't you? And she's like, well, excuse me for living Anita Bryan. And I'm always like, who the fuck is Susan Hayward? And so I was looking forward to kind of getting to know her a little bit. Um, because uh, I know that she won for I Want to Live, but I, mm -hmm. I, this is fun, sort of, um, this is my first introduction to her, and she did not disappoint. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll Cry Tomorrow is the story of Lillian Roth, whose rise to stardom was nearly destroyed by alcoholism. And oh boy, you're thinking, okay, 
because I've seen like Lee Remick in Days of Wine and Roses and like that got pretty dark, but the type of subject, when you talk about alcoholism in like the 1950s and the 1960s and stuff like that, it's, it is, cr- I always say that the 1960s was just one giant cup of whiskey because this is how they they're they are just yeah. pounding liquor like who's afraid of virginia wolf like they are just oh, yeah. pounding liquor in these movies and you're like oh my god like your poor liver r.i.p so the way that they portray alcoholism in this movie is it's like they often don't portray it very realistically or they don't portray it in like a dark way it's more just it's hard to explain exactly, but I found that this movie, it really went there. Yeah. And because uh, it got very dark. I mean, at one point, um, Susan Hayward is like going to jump out of a window and kill herself. Yeah. I, I was like, wow, this, this movie is very, for the time, I feel like this would be very heavy and very dark subject matter. And to pr- portray this performer, you know, Lillian Roth, and to really do it justice, I think um, it... it just makes for such a wonderful film and and it really allows Susan Hayward to demonstrate her abilities as an actor because you do see her full journey from being like this um, sort of sheltered uh, sort of mama's girl, if you will, uh, who's like, you know, she's such a stage mom and she's the helicopter parent. The only thing I would say I didn't like about this movie, it was, it was almost like there was this like, like kind of like message being like, well, daughters and sons, you better listen to your mother because if you don't listen to everything that your mother does and says, then you're going to become an alcoholic junkie and be in the fucking streets dying in the gutter. You're like, whoa, like Mm -hmm. that was kind of a bit of the, or at least that's how it read to me because it was like the consequence of not listening to her mother. And, or yeah, I guess you could interpret it being like, you know, she has to fly the nest and make her own mistakes and, the mother has to like watch and stuff like that. But that was really the only thing that I had um, problemized with um, this film. Uh, and the stage mom, by the way, was played by Joe Van Fleet, who I believe won Best Supporting Actress for East of Eden. Yes. Mm-hmm. That same uh, year. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, she was wonderful as um, the mother. I also loved the relationships that she would be in and then it would get super yeah. toxic and then she would be out of these relationships. Um, and the only part of this movie that made me laugh was whenever she had the DTs, the gym, the, the shakes and she was going through withdrawal with those Alcoholics Anonymous people. And she was in the bed. She was giving so much Linda Blair in The Exorcist in this bed. <laughs> that was the only part of this movie that made me laugh. Otherwise, it was a very serious, very dramatic performance. And um, truly, I can understand why Susan Hayward is an Oscar winner without even seeing um, I Want to Live. So uh, I very much enjoyed this. Anyway, uh, Glenn, what did you what did you think of Susan Hayward? Yeah, I mean, I really loved her performance. I And I think this, this role probably contributed to her winning the Oscar eventually uh-huh. because people, people knew about it. Um, I found, uh, yeah, I mean, she does her own singing too, like right off, right off the bat. It's, you know, it says these songs are performed by Susan Hayward. She deglams herself. Like she really does, is unglamorous for the last half or the last third of the film. Um, I, and like you, I totally agree with the depiction of alcoholism, of addiction, and the, the sensitivity around the dysfunctional and codependent relationships, I thought was so, 
was so eye-opening and so prescient for its time. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, the guy that she meets who basically, uh, Richard Conti, I think his name is, who's in The Godfather, uh, who's basically the sadistic guy who basically keeps her a prisoner and doesn't want her to go out, but is, you know, clever enough to know to say, oh, let's have lunch tomorrow or whatever, doesn't show up. And then she starts basically going off the wagon and goes on this bender. I thought that was so, so smart. The whole thing with the sailor guy that she she meets and their relationship based around alcohol, uh, based around drinking and everything. I mean, the one thing, my problem with it, it became by the end a little bit like a PSA, like a public service announcement. The narration, I thought, didn't really help because it was, seemed inconsistent. Okay. Sometimes it, it was there, sometimes it wasn't. Um, but just a full throttle, uh, melodramatic performance. Yeah, I, I, I just, I loved, I loved her performance in this. Um, I thought the script was really good too. I mean, do you remember her mom says something like, uh, I think she says, you know that feeling when you have nine, nine. M- no, $999,000 or whatever, and you're just so close to becoming a millionaire. I thought, wow, that's a really good line. But she just wants more. I mean, she's the ultimate right. sort of stage mom. And I thought Joe Van Fleet's performance was just fantastic. She always delivered every role with a sort of, every line with a sort of sneer in her face. And, uh, and she had to sort of, uh, I think, realize, you know, how much she contributed to her daughter's career and her decline too i think um and and just sort of lastly this i think this is like a great film about you know there's a cliche like the show must go on or whatever like regardless of what happens and there's a scene here when her i think fiance uh is sick and he dies she finds out and she has to plaster on the smile and go out on stage and deliver you know this performance and i think I think what the film shows is the cost of that, the cost of, you know, suppressing your humanity for for this, uh, for for show business. Right. I think um, some of, I actually had wrote down that um, the scene whenever she's losing it on her mother because she wants a fresh bottle of booze, like, now! And right. um, the mother kind of admits that this whole situation is like, her fault and she apologizes yeah. to her daughter. And in, there's, in this scene, it's like they're each putting their points of view sort of on the line and um, where their characters are coming from and why. And it's actually, I wrote down, it's actually some of the best scenes that I've seen in a long time on this podcast. Um, And just uh, a lot of, I find a lot of female characters uh, are often written by men and they're always Mm -hmm. just... It's not a believable mother-daughter sort of relationship. I loved how complicated this mother-daughter relationship was because there's still a lot of love there, but she does resent her mother at the same time. And to me, I think Susan Hayward made that so clear in every single scene. I mean, it sort of begins whenever she stands up to her mother when she wants to marry David. Mm -hmm. And you kind of just see, okay, like she's choosing something for herself here she's defending why she's doing what she wants to do and then when things kind of become a mess it's not like she goes back to her mother being like oh my god you were right she kind of stands Mm -hmm. by her decision but again there's also still that like resentment of not being able to make her own choices for the majority of her life and 
but then she still respects her mother's opinion. So it's it's a very um, complicated relationship. And I think that the the writing for it and the acting, it just was so beautifully um, executed. And um, it was just some of the best scenes um, and between her and Joe uh, then Fleet were yeah, just some of the best scenes that I've ever seen uh, on this podcast. And um, yeah. I really, I really, really, really loved it a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, my, my one of my little problems was, you know, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. So do you say your last name? Because the people in the meeting like said their entire name. Is, is that, I've <laughs> they never seen their that. address. Yeah, they were like, <laughs> yeah. I live here. Yeah, right. You want to meet me at my, I work yeah. on Mondays here. Right. <laughs> now I know. Yeah, that was weird. I thought that was a little strange. And you know what? I, I felt down a little, but I'm, I'm also looking at it from sort of today's perspective. But I felt let down a little bit at, by the ending because uh, because Lillian Roth had to validate herself through a man. Like mm. she was always latching on to some man. Like there was always a man. It was a constant, right? And so I thought, does she really have to fall for this AA guy? Like, could she not, you know, maybe say, oh, let's see what happens later on. Like, right. um, and just become her own person. I thought that would have been a lot more empowering. So I felt let down by that, but um, but overall, I thought this film was way ahead of its time. Totally, I thought staggering performance uh, performances, and uh, and good uh, good location work too. Like you know, I felt like I was in New York. Um, uh, so yeah, I would highly recommend this film. Uh, a couple of facts. Prior to filming, Susan Hayward took the opportunity to study in Lillian Roth's vocal style, tone, and delivery when Miss Roth performed in Las Vegas. Moreover, the two women became friends during the production. Okay. Joe Van Fleet uh, is just two and a half years older than Susan Hayward. Oh, no. no. There's some Hollywood casting. That was always <laughs> typical. Wasn't that yeah. like the same? Wow. Because it was... Um, uh, Oh my and God. Bancroft. No. And Bancroft. And Bancroft. Oh yeah. In, yeah. In, right. In The Graduate, of course. No, but I'm thinking of Tom Hanks and uh, in Punchline and then in Forrest Gump. Oh my God. Sally Field? Sally Field is the love wow. interest in Punchline. And then like literally like two years later, oh she's God. playing his mom oh in my Forrest God, you're Gump. You're right. You're right. <laughs> that, this, is a, this is a common thing that we, that, that is in the yep. Oh God, I feel so bad for women in these in these moments. Um, in her second autobiography published in 1958, uh, Beyond My Worth, Lillian Roth uh, noted that although her mother Katie spoke with a Boston accent, Joe Van Fleet portrayed Katie as sounding ethnically Eastern European Jewish. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is okay. I mean, you're really taking some creative liberties with that one. That is insane. <laughs> It's like, I mean, although technically uh, Eleanor Parker, or no, it's not Eleanor Parker. Yeah, Eleanor Parker, you're supposed to be Australian, right? So she she was taking some creative liberties with that as well. Everyone's, it was just a choose your own accent back in the I, day. Well, I bought the mother's accent here. I'm sad knowing that it wasn't real um, <laughs> or that it, that it was misleading because I actually, I thought it gave her this real tenacity that she, you know, came from the old country and everything. And, and you know, uh, so I, I, yeah, I'm sad to know that fact. That's so weird. She just comes on stage with like a, like a thick Jamaican accent. You're like, whoa, like what's going on, lady? <laughs> 
Uh, oh, also another thing that I did think was really funny about this movie was like how the um, the the uh, the first man that she marries, who was like in the I think he's in the army, and he's like waiting outside of her to meet uh, this fabulous Broadway diva, yeah. and I'm like, do oh, straight yeah. men do that? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, okay, Queen, I think we need and he's like, This is my friend. We're both sailors. You're like, mm-hmm. Oh, the nineteen fifties was so naive. Um okay, well just for time's sake though, uh I do think that we should probably move on, but just any closing statements on Susan Hayward? No, go see it. Yeah, go see. I really would recommend it. And it, the um, I mean, like, I'm an alcoholic. For me, like, watching these kinds of things, and I'm not, not that bad, uh, but, like, watching this movie, it was a very realistic portrayal of uh, uh, what it's like to be addicted to alcohol, what it can do, how can it, it can affect relationships, um, and the physicality of it. I believed that she was drunk. Who knows? Maybe mm-hmm. she was to, like, really sell it. I don't know, but it was just so believable. Um, and, uh, yeah, as a drunk, I give it uh, five beer bottles out of five, you know? Great. Um, okay. So let us talk about our winner, Anna Mignani, for the Rose Tattoo. So um, Anna Mignani, oh, the Rose Tattoo is a Sicilian seamstress who idolizes her husband, must deal with several family crises, 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 upon his sudden death. You would know better than me. Uh, I can't read or write. Um she, Anna Mignani, actually became the first Italian and first uh, English as a second language female to win an Oscar for Best Actress. Um, and uh, this was Anna Mignani's first English-speaking role in a Hollywood film. So, not bad. Uh, she was very nervous about her English and her heavy accent during filming and, in fact, had turned down the role in the stage version earlier for the same reason. Uh Tennessee Williams uh, was a big fan of Anna Mignani and actually wrote this for her. And um, yeah, the thing about Tennessee Williams, I find I'm very in or out. Like Streetcar Named Desire, I'm in. Sweet Bird of Mm -hmm. Youth, I'm out. Mm -hmm. This, The Rose Tattoo, I am in. I really, really enjoyed this movie. I've I've never seen anything with Anna Mignani before. Um, I do know that Sophia Loren uh, is a huge fan, and I'm a huge fan of Sophia Loren, so you're like, okay, I get it. Um, what I love about the way that Enemin Yanni portrays this character is it's very gritty, very realistic, and um, it doesn't have that sort of... The way that she's performing it, she's not performing it with that sort of Hollywood gloss that, let's say, Jennifer Jones in Full Yellow Face is doing, you know? Mm-hmm. She, she has this sort of gritty, realistic way of portraying this, like, character. And um, it's also probably not really a character that America was used to seeing on the big screen in a starring role. So I think that that's some, worth celebrating, and um, mentioning uh, this movie, uh, I mean, hi, Burt Lancaster, who knew he was hot, um, <laughs> comes in. And uh, I really uh, enjoyed this. I, re- I enjoyed the relationship um, with her daughter, how, she, how Anna Mignani's character became a recluse after her husband died and how she wouldn't allow her daughter to, like, <laughs> like wear a dress, look pretty, because she, Anna Mignani was miserable and the way that she like attacks a fucking priest like 
there's a lot of really um, interesting and fun things going on in this movie. And I don't think that anybody other than Anna Mignani could have um, done this role and this character. And I just, uh, I, I totally get it. And I very much, if anybody has not seen the Rose Tattoo, I very much um, giving it a watch. Um, anyway, those are my opening thoughts. Uh, Glenn, what did you think of Anna Mignani in the Rose Tattoo? Um, I mean, I think she is a force of nature as an actress. I mean, she's grounded. She's naturalistic. Um, you're right. I don't think American audiences would have seen any any character like this before on a big screen uh, unless they were into, you know, foreign films. Um, she's like an earth mother. Uh, she's she's just it, it's like, you know, there's a saying, you know, it's a cliche because there's some truth to it. So when you see, you know these Italian women on College Street or whatever, all in black or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, this is Anna Magnani is the the archetype. She right. is who they are. And I thought, I just didn't buy the movie as much as you did. I love that you love it. Um, I didn't find that the tone was quite clear. I thought, is this tragedy? You know, because she's like, she's she finds out her husband has been having this affair. She sequesters herself away for three years. Um, and then sort of finds new love with this with strange guy who's got a body like her ex-husband's, but a what is it, like a clown's face or something that they describe it? Is it comedy? <laughs> what, I, what I found really interesting, and I've got to dig it up, is apparently um, a John Patrick Shanley, who wrote the screenplay for Moonstruck mm-hmm. uh, and won an Oscar for that. He and, and of course, Moonstruck is about this Italian-American family. He wrote an introduction uh, to a recent uh, reissue of the play. So I'm dying to see what he writes because yeah. he obviously would have studied this um, before writing Moonstruck. And I think that in something like Moonstruck, that whole thing, the tragic comedy sort of thing is so perfect. It's done so well. And you love all these characters. I like these characters and I just didn't quite know what I felt about them, though. I thought, you know, I Burt Lancaster, yeah, he can be really hot, but his haircut in this is just, it's just a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. The whole, the whole overuse of the Rose metaphor, like her daughter is named Rosa, I think. Her last name is Del Rosa or something. And uh, the rose tattoo. He, he, Burt Lancaster has. She makes him, or or it's a long story, but there's a rose silk shirt right. that uh, that uh, Anna Magnani makes because she's a seamstress. Turns out she makes it for the mistress of her 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 husband. I just thought the rose metaphor or imagery was just overdone. <laughs> but there's 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 just no no denying. Uh, her power, her just sheer force of nature power. Like she's, I think one critic called her volcanic and that truly is what she is like. So I'm really glad that I saw it. Didn't love the movie that much. Um, It's interesting. I think of all the films and I'm even including uh, I'll Cry Tomorrow in this, I would actually say the Rose Tattoo was the one that I like really paid attention to the most. Like I really sat down and, and, um, really, really got into it. it I uh, really enjoyed watching after her husband dies and she becomes a recluse and the way she fights her daughter, but she still, you know, wants to be there for her graduation. And then um, I don't even think she ends up getting there for the graduation, but um, just the way that you, once she starts kind of dating Burt Lancaster a little bit and you see 
sort of like her vulnerable side coming out and breaking down her walls, but like at her, on her terms, at her, and it just, it didn't even end up really sort of working out at first. And he ended up sleeping on the floor because he got too drunk. And the thing is, is because you, you you said that you didn't know how you felt about these characters. And I feel like I kind of agree with that. But the reason why I like that is because they felt so real to me. Like just the way that Bert was so like trying so hard because he, well, wanted to get laid. And it's like, I can see that like, I re- for the time, especially like I, I would see that man doing that. Like it just all seemed very believable to me. And uh, yeah, like, I, it, oh, also worth mentioning the attack of the Karens, those, those prostitutes that came in mm-hmm. that looked like the two evil mm-hmm. stepsisters from Cinderella. One of them was Joe Van Fleet. <laughs> I know, I know. And I didn't even realize yeah. yeah, I didn't. I didn't even. I didn't recognize her at all. But I. Yeah. I yeah. loved just that this character seemed the most realistic to me. I. I. Yeah. I know that she is out there in this world somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Like she is out totally. there breathing yeah. and living. Yeah. And I. Uh, I think that Anna Mignani absolutely nailed it. And I. I think that they. I mean, this was written for her, and you can see that um, she's flexing all of her skills here of totally. what she's able to do as an as an actress. Yeah, I mean, it's also a great role. I mean, you know. Uh, Maureen Stapleton won a Tony Award when she played it on Broadway, and I think that was her breakthrough role on on the stage. And Anna Magnani won an Oscar for this. So it's one of those juicy sort of parts that if you play it really well, you will be rewarded. And mm-hmm. obviously that happened here. I just, I just wonder what it would have been like if I believed in the Burt Lancaster character more. Like, what the hell was he doing at the end um, on that boat, pretending yeah. to be a bird? That just confused me. I, and, it, I, and did we, and I thought, did we miss a lot? Did I miss a line or something? Was there something about a bird on a boat? <laughs> and, right. thought, and it was supposed to be this charming sort of sexy little thing. Cause I think he's, he was shirtless or whatever. And it just took me out of the film. And I thought, Oh God, get rid of this guy. <laughs> like, swipe left. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I would have literally taken a trip to Pound Town in 1950s <laughs> Burt Lancaster. He was a babe. He was, yeah. Um in the Mardi Gras club scenes, a few familiar faces appear among the extras as Serafina Ooh. storms by the men on bar stools. Tennessee Williams himself can be seen sitting at the bar in a striped wow. shirt. The man wow. beside him is producer Hal B. Wallace. The shorter man in the white shirt standing directly behind Estelle. Oh my God, I'm going to say this one wrong. Ho Hengarten, Virginia Gray, uh, helping to restrain her is Frank Marlowe, Williams' longtime companion. Oh, and, wow. Uh, wow, yeah. Um, and also, uh, the daughter, I, I she was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And whenever Anna Mignani won the Academy Award, she accepted it on her behalf. Um, and I think this was one of two nominations that, uh, Anna Mignani had in her career. I think, let me just look up. Fugitive Kind, maybe? I think it, oh, of course. Um, whoops, it is. Whoops-a-doodle. Of course, my internet has to be so slow right now, but yes, yeah, she has been nominated twice wild is the wind cool is the second nomination that she had um but i almost kind of feel like anna Mignani 
uh, walked so Sophia Loren could fly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I also, what I also just love about Anna Mignani in this movie is that she is taking no crap from anybody. And I always yeah. love a, a female character like that. Um, I she made me wish that uh, she had existed in whenever Bridges of Madison County was made because I thought oh to have a real Italian woman play Francesca or whatever her name is like I know Meryl Streep is really skillful and everything but I thought she could have nailed that and I thought oh you oh, know yeah. if only she had played this. Italian bride living in the middle of nowhere on a country on a farm or whatever who falls in love that that would have just been you know chef's kiss <laughs> yeah I could um, totally see that and I forgot right? yeah what's yeah was Meryl Streep was she Italian in that movie yeah oh yeah 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 with oh. the accent and everything yeah you know so she didn't do an Eleanor Parker and not try for an accent but right yeah I always think about when I think of the bridges of Madison County I always think about the awful cutscenes that they do to her children in the future and they are yeah. so bad yeah. it's like a completely it's, it's like a Meryl Streep movie and then like a Canadian made for TV movie <laughs> and they keep like intercutting between the two and you're like what is this? and right. they're like non-union actors or something right. and you're like what is this right yeah. um but anyway okay well is there anything else that you would like to add to the rose tattoo or Adam and Yanni before we pick our winner? Uh, yeah, just briefly. That one scene, I think it's my favorite scene when her daughter uh, brings over her hunky sailor boyfriend or whatever. Um, and Anna Magnani, of course, because she's been burned, she's so suspicious. And she brings, she, she wants her daughter to go out of the room because she wants the sailor kid or whatever to swear on the Virgin Mary that, you know, that she will, yeah. that he will respect her and everything like that, and she's so serious. And he finally does it. And that after that, after he does his thing, she's perfectly fine with them yeah. spending time. Like I just, <laughs> it says so much about her character. And I thought, and I thought that was a good comic moment in this film. And I just, I wish there were a few more like that. But she totally nails that scene. It's, it's yeah. beautiful. That was, yeah, that was really funny. And she keeps like locking her daughter out. She's like, Fuck that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was, yeah. that was really yeah. funny. Uh, also, just the fact that she like really came at that priest whenever she wanted uh, oh, him to reveal yeah. through confession if he was having uh, totally, uh, yeah, or, yeah. or that her husband was having an affair. Oh my, that was amazing yeah. losing it. And she priest. did, yeah, she didn't want to. She didn't want to talk about this in the church, right? Like she was so devout. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, I love that. Some yeah. really, yeah, really, really great scenes in that film. Um, okay, well, uh, Glenn Sumi, you are my guest of honor, so please reveal who you think that the Oscar should have gone to first. Oh, oh, this is hard. You know, I had my mind made up before, but now discussing it with you. I know, okay. I feel the same way. Yeah. Okay, I okay. I think the Oscar should have gone to... Catherine Hepburn in Summertime. Oh, really? Um, I do. I do. Um, I I know she has what so many Oscars. She is. She's. You know. She was the Meryl Streep of her time. Um, but I think that this is. Uh, if you're a Catherine Hepburn fan and you've never seen it, that seen her performance in this, this is unlike anything you've se- she's done before. Um, so that if she did have, you know, a handful of Oscars or whatever, I wish that this had been one of them. It's like, I believe this character. 
Um, she made me, as we were talking about, root for her. Um, she broke my heart. And at the end, when she's on that train going away, I really do feel like this woman's life has been, you know, I'm even tearing up talking about, it, has been completely changed. And she's finally, finally found love. And I think, you know, that's just an extraordinary performance in a really, really good film that I will see again. Oh, I love that. Okay. I really was not expecting you to say that. I was like very surprised. Okay. Well, I yeah. love, I always love a, I always love like a, a, a shocking moment on this mm-hmm. podcast. Twist. It's usually pretty predictable on this podcast. So that, that was fun. Thank you for that. Um, okay. Well, I think that the Oscar should have gone to. Susan Hayward for I'll Cry Tomorrow. I thought that for me, just in terms of personal taste, because I fully understand why Anna Magnani won, good for her. And, um, you know, I completely get it. Uh, But for me, it really is just coming down to personal taste. I just thought that Susan Hayward's performance uh, for me was just more compelling. I got more into it and I loved how dark the film got. I mean, she literally contemplates suicide. Also, um, you know, that scene where at the very end she has to go on TV and tell her story and um, you can feel the anxiety that she has about that she's about to be so vulnerable to all of America like on television. And um, I'm sure that for the time, discussing those types of things publicly would be very difficult. And they didn't even show the scene, but she just portrayed the anxiety of it so well. And um, I just feel like of all the characters, I understood her the most, not just because I'm an alcoholic, but because I just um, thought that the journey for the character was uh, the most interesting because she kind of is this naive actress at the beginning who is sheltered by her mother and then shit really fucking hits the fan. (laughs) And um, I think that she just, she nails it. And I, um, I love the the way that they portrayed alcoholism in a very um, honest and accurate sort of way. And uh, it was very gritty and very realistic and um, 10 out of 10. So, Oh, you're, what did I say? Five beer bottles out of five. There you go. So man. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, just down to personal taste, it was Susan Hayward in I'll cry tomorrow. I'm actually shocked. None of us picked Anna Mignani. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, I think maybe because I've seen, I want to live. I, and I like that film so and performance so much. Maybe I held back, but uh, right. But yeah, she would have totally been the runner-up for me. And Kyle, that uh, TV clip exists on YouTube, so just search Lillian Roth plus uh, what is it? Uh, this is your life. So you get to see the real Lillian Roth, and it's, oh, it's wow. fascinating. I'm I know she then. sings okay. too. So. Oh, amazing. Okay. Uh, Well, that concludes another episode of Best Actress. Glenn, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast again. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, I am at at Glenn Sumi on on Twitter, for formerly Twitter, and at so, so Sumi IG on Instagram, and I think Threads it's called. Uh, and the best place to reach me is my blog, uh, which is goaheadsumi.com. So it's uh, and that's like a newsletter too. So yeah, go ahead, Sumi. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash best actress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my God. Go to patreon.com slash best actress to subscribe. And I will see you all at Howard's Inn.